I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part seven in our series, What We Believe and What We Do Because We Believe It. Men and women make up the church, make up our church. Is gender a cultural construct? Is it open to interpretation? Why has it been weaponized and militarized in popular culture? What does it mean to be male or female? And how do we understand gender as part of our discipleship to Jesus? Uh, Last week, I had a conversation with a guy who, like many of my generation, was a a tad exhausted with American evangelicalism. And we were kind of going back and forth about it, and to make his point, he brought up the Grammys and somebody called Sam Smith. Now, if you don't know, because I didn't, Sam Smith is a British pop singer who apparently danced around at the 2023 Grammys wearing little devil horns on his top hat. Uh, the story, there he is, yeah, with some red lighting and everything. Now, the story goes that in the wake of this performance, conservative politicians, they rushed to the internet, which is always a great idea, to describe the performance as an actual satanic ritual, which means that either things have gotten really dorky at the Church of Satan, or just that these, <laughs> these old white people on Twitter just got whoever it was that had the idea to use red lights and spandex arrays because they helped the whole silly thing go viral. Now, the guy I was talking to brought this up as yet another example of politicized evangelicalism's tendency to embarrass itself. But as he described the scene to me, something interesting was happening. Again, I didn't know about this, so I was learning about it from him. The guy kept stumbling back and forth between the words he and they, describing the pop singer Sam Smith. This guy kept saying he, well, I mean they, and me not knowing much about top 40 pop music or Sam Smith or the performance itself, I was understandably confused. And finally, I asked, and the guy told me that Sam Smith prefers the gender-neutral gender pro- pronouns they and them. So I said, oh, okay, this is the first I'm hearing about any of it. Personally, I don't much care what some pop singer wears to the Grammys, really, but I did look up the performance for the sake of researching this teaching. And I'll admit, (laughs) I'll admit, I was offended. Not by the lyrical content or the wardrobe, but more by how absolutely terrible that song is. And... uh, Despite, it's just insulting to my ears and brain, and despite sounding like something generated by an AI, this thing apparently took seven people to write. I looked it up. (laughs) Oh, man. And the song is, I mean, this is not me exaggerating. The song is, I read the lyrics as well, it's kind of a very simple celebration of a married man who leaves his wife and kids. The song makes a weird, creepy point of saying again and again and again. He leaves his wife and kids at home so he can do all sorts of illicit things with all sorts of other men and women without his family ever knowing about it. And it's a duet between a a non-binary and a transgender singer. So it's sort of just a a conservative cultural warrior's worst nightmare. (laughs) And it became this kind of, as I'm reading headlines, it became this kind of totem of our moment. Uh, winning the Grammy for Best Pop Performance, inviting all kinds of ideological celebration of diversity and inclusiveness (laughs) for this thing, this song that I think is probably fair to say is sort of intentionally depraved, forcing both the right and the left to become ridiculous caricatures of themselves in full pearl-clutching mania. Just a really weird pop culture moment. My favorite thing about all of it was that TMZ reached out to the Church of Satan for a comment. Uh, So David Harris, who's apparently the magister for the Church of Satan, told TMZ that the performance was, and I'm reading an actual direct quote, it was all right. (laughs) Even the Church of Satan was unimpressed. (laughs) So I talked to this guy about it. He told me about it for the first time, and I listened to him kind of fumble the pronouns to his own horror, I'm sure. And it became this fascinating example of the way that we understand gender in the modern world and how that understanding keeps changing. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Yes, once again, Genesis chapter 1. Don't worry, you'll be fine. Oh, okay, yeah. Every time you hear Genesis chapter 1, get excited. We are nearing the end of an ongoing series that will become our church's doctrinal statement. What we believe 
and what we do because we believe it. So we have spent weeks now talking about God and humanity and salvation and the scriptures and the church and discipleship and spiritual formation. Tonight is the second installment of a two-part entry in the series in which we use what we hold to be true about all those things to wrestle with one of our culture's most divisive issues, sexuality and gender. If you weren't here last week, go back, listen to the podcast. We're using a lot of the work that we did last week throughout the scriptures to sort of build on and carry us into this week's conversation. Okay, deep breath. I'm going on vacation after these two teachings, and you can forward all your emails to Cam. He wants to talk to you about it. All right, let's read from the scriptures. Let's stand together as a gesture of respect for the scriptures which were breathed out by God himself. Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now turn over to chapter 2 and look at verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. These words are inspired by God. Thanks, guys. Go ahead and have a seat. Now... I know that a lot of that sounds strange. Is it poetry? Is it narrative? Is it history? Is it something else? Is it purely symbolic? Is it half symbolic? Don't get tripped up on all that just yet. Instead, let's go back in time. When I was 12 years old, I grew my hair long for the first time. I had wanted long hair for a long time because long hair is cool. This is, uh, that's me on the left over there uh, with, you know, all three of us wearing our Nirvana t-shirts. Um, Kurt Cobain had long hair, so, you know, that's the aspiration of every young man circa 1993 or whenever that was. Now, my dad, uh, being an upright southern man that he was, he had fought me on the long hair thing for a very long time because to him, his words, long hair was effeminate, despite the fact that he, as a young man, had long hair. Look at this guy. <laughs> that's him. Yeah, it looks exactly like mine did. <laughs> so I grew my hair long. And then sometime around 1994, Trent Reznor became my creative hero, who went around looking like this all the time at that time. A bit later, David Bowie joined his ranks. There's the two of them together. And so on into adulthood, I would spend years of my life playing music, dressed up in eyeliner and fishnet stockings and latex opera gloves. To me, theatricality was an important part of performance art, not unlike, you know, Japanese kabuki dance drama or ballet dancers who paint their faces and dress in feathers to perform Swan Lake. But inevitably, since I'm from Georgia, one of many small-town accusations to emerge from my strange youthful aesthetic was Josh dresses like a girl. Now, in some ways, I have, this is going to surprise a lot of you, I've never really lived up to some of the uh, alpha male caricatures of, uh, what are you laughing about? <laughs> you know, I drive a hybrid. I've never owned a truck. I don't eat animal products. I still don't know who was in the Super Bowl last week. And uh, one of our overseers left a comment on the side of this teaching telling me who it was, and I immediately deleted it. So I still don't know. <laughs> uh, and though the conversation around gender identity had not yet reached you know, Southeast Georgia in the late 90s, I never actually suspected I was anything other than uh, my biological sex. And no one ever sincerely suggested otherwise. If I were called something like girly, it would have been pejorative. But things are really different today. A few weeks ago, 
A pastor friend of mine in Portland sent his five-year-old son, a little boy with long blonde hair, to kindergarten. His son came home and told his dad, my teacher told me today I'm not a he, I'm a they. And this, the teacher said, was really exciting news. Meanwhile, many insist that a boy with long hair is neither masculine nor effeminate because such things are merely antiquated cultural concepts. Gender itself, some argue, is a cultural concept. So while some argue for the possibility of a, a man born in a woman's body or vice versa or that bodies always correspond with gender, another camp argues there is no man or woman in the pure sense because gender is little more than a cultural construct. And all of this has reached popular culture and headlines about the Grammys in 2023. Now, as was the case last week, I am acutely aware of the fact that a conversation around gender and the Bible and Jesus and the church will likely land on some of us with a certain amount of apprehension. I get it. That's totally fine. So let me repeat something I said last week. There are, right now, in this room, there will be people listening to this podcast for whom the question of gender and what the Bible says about it are personally pressing. There are people who have been legitimately hurt by the church's tendency to, to moralize at the expense of things like empathy and human dignity, to reduce complex personal pain and suffering to unthinking rule-based fundamentalism. Now, obviously, I said this also last week, our church is not perfect. If you've been here for any stretch of time, you know that well enough. But as much as it depends on us, it is our goal to accurately present the scriptures and the words of Jesus, to submit to what we believe them to teach, and to do so in such a way that demonstrates humility, compassion, and love for human beings made in God's image who are wrestling with what this means for themselves or for people that they love. Now, I know that many of us can't help but feel nervous or upset about this stuff. I get it. So I am asking you, as your pastor, as someone whose responsibility it is to teach the Bible, as much as it depends on you, do your best to reserve judgment, hear me out, be patient, and go with me for the next little stretch with as open a mind as you can, okay? Is that all right? Great, thank you. I want to spend a little time working with the scriptures, talk about our culturally evolving paradigm of gender, and finally bring all that to bear on our church. Now, as we read in Genesis moments ago, the Bible's paradigm for gender is pre presented in the very, very beginning, from the opening pages of the scriptures. Bible scholar N.T. Wright says this, Right there, at the start of the whole Bible, as we have it, and the start of the book of Genesis, we have this rich, symbolic account of God's good creation in which, at its very heart, the coming together of male plus female is itself a signpost pointing to the great complementarity of God's whole creation, of heaven and earth belonging together. That is why I believe the biblical picture of a man and woman together in marriage is not something about which we can say, oh, well, they had some funny ideas back then, we know better now. The biblical view of marriage is part of the large whole of new creation, and it symbolizes and points to that divine plan. From the very beginning of both the Bible's story and the story of humanity itself, we learn that human beings function in wholeness together as male and female upon the creative artistry and ordination of God himself. Gender, in other words, was God's idea. He made it up. And he designed human relationships, not just sexual ones, but human relationships to thrive when both genders come together in loving relational collaboration. This means, stay with me here, that together men and women can complement one another's unique strengths and mitigate one another's unique weaknesses. In God's ordination, the presence of both genders can release the best of the other and restrain the worst. Of the other. That is the way God designed things, but not the way they work by default in a broken world. In other words, for God's ordination of romance or relationships or even just, you know, human collaborative potential and teamwork to be honored and realized, we need one another, male and female. And when this dynamic is realized as God intends it to be, we can bring out the best in one another and we can curb the worst in one another. God has designed humanity with two genders to become the complete picture of creative partnership with Him, with one another, and to represent God to the world and in the church as the body of Christ. So what I want to talk about tonight is, one, 
What happens when we deconstruct or reinvent God's design of gender? And two, what happens when we create and steward systems in which both, gen both genders are not given adequate space to express God's design of complementary partnership? Then, before we end, again, I'll offer a few pastoral considerations for how we can embody this as disciples of Jesus. So now do me a favor and turn to the right in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew, first book in the New Testament, chapter 18. In the story we're about to read, the setup is uh, the religious leaders of Jesus' day are putting his knowledge of the Scriptures to the test in an effort to catch him in some kind of contradiction or in some kind of theological position that would discredit him in front of all of his followers. So look at Matthew 18, beginning with verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, "'Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason?' Verse 4, haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning, see, Jesus is just like me, Genesis 1, at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if that's the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry at all. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Now, notice two things about this passage. There's a lot there. We don't have time to get into all of it, but notice a couple things. First, when asked a sort of peripheral question about marriage and divorce, and really it's a loaded question just to trip him up, but when asked a question about marriage and divorce, Jesus immediately reaches back into Genesis and God's Edenic ordination of romance and marriage and sexuality as designed by God to exist always not only between one man and one woman from different families in a lifelong monogamous marriage covenant. Essentially, on all things marriage, Jesus is saying, I am with the scriptures and the paradigm established in Genesis 1. But secondly, notice Jesus' language beginning in verse 12. There are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So this is really fascinating. This passage reveals that Jesus is aware of people who we would now describe as intersex, those who are born with any of several sex characteristics, including chromosome patterns, gonads, or genitals that, according to the Office of the United States High Commissioner of Human Rights, quote, do not fit typical binary notions of male or female bodies. And Jesus is also aware of those who experience natural biological sexual attraction either to the opposite sex or the same sex, and choose, of their own volition, a life of celibacy for the sake of the kingdom of God. And of course, Jesus is aware of how badly the ideal of marital faithfulness had eroded amongst God's people as a result of what he calls hardened hearts, resulting in the kind of breakdown of God's paradigm for marriage, in this case, in widespread divorce. So, aware of and understanding different expression, expressions of sexuality both inside and outside God's ideal, and aware of and understanding different conditions and expressions of gender, Jesus does not deconstruct or reinvent sexuality or gender. He goes instantly and confidently right back to Genesis, insisting and reaffirming God's design in the beginning, male and female, he created them. In the scriptures, gender is not understood as a cultural construct, but as essential, as inherent, intrinsic, innate to the planned and artistry of the Creator God. The two genders, man and woman, are not identical, they're not interchangeable, and yet somehow in the cosmic artistry of God, when a man and a woman, husband and wife, come together in sexual union, they become one flesh. Pastor and author John Tyson puts it like this, Dividing the human race into two genders, male and female, one or the other, not both, and not one then the other, is not the invention of Victorian prudes or patriarchal oafs. It's God's idea. Now, stay with me on this. I want to get into something 
I believe is crucial that I worry is often missing from this conversation. It's no secret that both the culture and the church have in many cases severely deviated from God's design and ordination of gender. This is happening at such an unprecedented breakneck speed that very few people can even keep up with it. This week as I was studying, I came across a YouTuber who specializes in teaching something called neo-pronouns, and in a video which she described uh, how to talk to a person who uses frog neo-pronouns. Frog should be proud of frog self was the example she used. And I know that sounds like I'm being snarky or cynical, but I honestly showed it to a friend who's very well read in these conversations, and it took a while for, for us to figure out whether or not it was a parody or, or something entirely sincere. It turned out to be the latter. My point is that things are changing really fast. Maybe someone in this room knows all about neo-pronouns, but on the other hand, I'm assuming to some of you that sounds kind of bananas. And that's my point. The, the cultural landscape around gender is shifting with such incredible speed and ambiguity that it's really easy to feel lost. And here's the point I want to make, and please listen to me on this. I would argue that when the church deviates from God's design for gender, and when the culture deviates from God's design for gender, in both cases, women ultimately pay the highest price. First, the church. Now, at Van City, we believe theologically that though men and women are inherently different, they are both entirely equal bearers of the divine image, and that both men and women should lead and serve the church together. Men and women preparing communion and making coffee, men and women leading small groups, men and women teaching the scriptures, men and male and female pastors and teachers, male and female overseers. Now, there are, I believe, many churches who take a different theological position and are still sincerely working to honor the human dignity and value of men and women in their communities. I don't mean to kind of deify our doctrine and demonize someone else at a fundamental level. But what happens in a community where men and women are not empowered to collaborate with and complement one another as God intended? I mentioned last week that I've borrowed liberally from John Tyson's work on this, and in his teaching on gender, he observes the tragic, fascinating statistical propensity for male church leaders, in, especially in the conservative reform tradition, to experience some kind of scandalous moral failure. He said, if you were to map out major scandals over the last 10 years, one of the most heartbreaking things you will find is that strong reformed pastors may be the most prone pastors to be removed from ministry of any category. They're removed for different reasons, pride, lack of shepherding, belligerence. How does this happen? It's quite simple. You get a hundred men in one room called the elders of the church, and it's just a giant pecking event. It's just primal male energy without restraint. But I guarantee that if one woman was to simply walk in the room and say, gentlemen, what are we discussing here? All of that energy and aggression would be subdued and the servant side of a man would be released. He goes on to argue the same is true of a shifting dynamic in a room of 100 women when a single male enters. But when a church allows one gender or, or, or a church system allows one gender to lead without the other gender present in partnership or in collaboration at all, I believe one gender will not realize its full potential, and its worst qualities and brokenness will likely go unmitigated. Um, John Piper is a guy who's famous, a uh, pastor and theologian who takes the patriarchal complementarian position in theology and practice, meaning Dr. Piper does not believe it is ever appropriate for a man to learn from a woman. And understanding how complicated such a rigid position eventually becomes, like how exactly do you live that out, he offers the metaphor of a drill sergeant and a city planner. His words, not mine. Piper does not believe it's ever permissible for a man to receive direct instruction from a woman as if she were his drill sergeant. But he does believe it's okay to receive the indirect authority of a woman as if she were a city planner, making decisions about roads on which the man will inevitably drive. So, Piper concludes, it's okay for Christian men to read Christian books by women in as much as they receive the instruction indirectly. So, it's kind of like, you know, just try not to learn anything while you read the book. <laughs> and I can tell you from many years now of experience in ministry with men and women and throughout seminary, especially with many male, female friends in ministry and a few female classmates in seminary, many of whom were left uh, throughout the process of the years because of the way they were treated, their experience has not been like mine. Beth Moore, 
fell under tremendous scrutiny from her Baptist peers when she had the nerve to describe her own experience as a female church leader. She said this. Listen to me. I'm going to read this long quote to you guys. She says, As a woman leader in the conservative evangelical world, I learned early to show constant pronounced deference, not just proper respect, which I was glad to show, to male leaders, and when placed in situations to serve alongside them, to do so apologetically. I issued disclaimers ad nauseum. I wore flats instead of heels when I knew I'd be serving alongside a man of short, shorter stature so I wouldn't be taller than he. I've ridden elevators and hotels packed with fellow leaders who were serving at the same event and not been spoken to, and even more awkwardly, in the same vehicles where I was never acknowledged. I've been in team meetings where I was either ignored or made fun of, the latter of which I was expected to understand was all in good fun. I am a laugher. I can take jokes and make jokes. I know good fun when I'm having it, and I also know when I'm being dismissed and ridiculed. I was the elephant in the room with a skirt on. I've been talked down to by male seminary students and held my tongue when I wanted to say, brother, I was getting up before dawn to pray and to pour over the scriptures when you were still in your pull-ups. <laughs> she goes on, about a year ago, listen to this, I had an opportunity to meet with a theologian I'd long respected. I'd read virtually every book he'd written. I looked so forward to getting to share a meal with him and talk theology. The instant I met him, he looked me up and down, smiled approvingly, and said, you are better looking than blank. He didn't leave it blank. He filled it in with the name of another woman Bible teacher. This, I think, is a glimpse into a church world that does not honor God's design of gender. Male leaders fall to moral scandals in droves, and female leaders are dehumanized as the church is robbed of their unique contribution to the kingdom of God. But what happens when the greater culture becomes, or the idea of gender becomes malleable in the greater culture? We live in a time and place during which what it means to be a man or a woman is hotly debated, and the advocacy for transgender rights and recognition are an ordinary talking point in the pop culture conversation. Earlier this week, NPR ran a story documenting an open letter to the New York Times condemning the famously progressive publication for, and I quote, coverage debating the propriety of medical care for trans children. The letter goes on to condemn the magazine for recent headlines like, quote, doctors debate whether trans teens need therapy before hormones, insisting the paper presents such issues as settled and definitive, not debated or debatable, to acknowledge that there is some disagreement in America over whether or not prepubescent children should be given puberty blockers or undergo invasive, irreversible surgical procedures to some is tantamount to bigotry. But wherever you land on either side of that conversation, there is debate, whether we like it or not. Meanwhile, someone in my community has a kid asking uh, questions about her classmate who last year in kindergarten was a little boy, but returned to the first grade as a little girl. So this is out there in the abstract world of headlines in the New York Times, and it's right here in our lives amongst the people we know and love. And the question becomes, how does the church respond? Now first, let me just say this from the outset, we believe that something called gender dysphoria is a real documented phenomenon in which a person can experience profound psychological distress when their felt experience does not correspond with the physical reality of their bodies. And for anyone wrestling through the pain of the human condition in unique and often alienating ways, the church and our church can and should be a welcoming refuge in which we invite the messiness of other people into our own messes and say, look, you are welcome to come with us on the journey to figure out how we navigate the chaos of life, mind, body, and soul as we follow Jesus together. Now, that said, gender dysphoria is not necessarily the same thing as gender identity ideology. And it is extremely difficult to separate the medical data from the ideological data. Some older data I consulted this week indicates that about 0.005% of adult males and 0.002% of adult females experience gender dysphoria. Newer data puts the number closer to 04 
But fascinatingly, some new research indicates or argues that nearly 3% of teenagers identify as either transgender or gender nonconforming. But even these figures are changing rapidly and in the chaos of a culture war. In 2021, 60 Minutes ran an episode documenting several young people who claimed to have been uh, pressured or guided recklessly into gender, into gender reassignment procedures, only to regret their decisions and detransition back to their birth sex. The episode did not argue, I watched the whole thing, it did not argue against the concept of gender, d- gender dysphoria, nor suggest that all transgender medicine was somehow immoral. It simply interviewed a collection of unhappy people, allowing them space to tell and detail their own experience. And after all, isn't a safe space to be honest with your struggle, about your struggles with gender, a hallmark of gender identity ideology? Apparently not. The, the special was met with intense vocal backlash and pulled from the air and the internet. 60 Minutes and their uh, parent network were made to issue an apology. One LGBTQ publication ran a headline saying, Dear 60 Minutes, there is no both sides. In the wake of the vocal campaign to silence and censor the episode, the few detransitioned young people featured in the documentary felt scorned by the community that once welcomed them, wondering why does my painful experience with gender have no place in this conversation? A mental health professional I know who works with patients experiencing gender dysphoria and has for decades, um, he's a PhD, he's been at it for a very long time. He says in private, aware he could lose his license for saying so publicly, that he believes in the coming years that legions of patients who have undergone gender reassignment at a young age will bring legal charges against their parents and doctors. And I remember hearing that and thinking, uh, wow, that's an intense theory. Then a few months ago, it was reported that the Tavistock Gender Identity Clinic in the United Kingdom is facing mass legal action from a thousand former patients whom their lawyers are saying, and I quote, these children have suffered life-changing and in some cases irreversible effects of the treatment they received, which has resulted in long-term physical and psychological consequences for them. And if you read the research and listen to the stories of some who felt homeless in their bodies and went looking for redemption or, or in treatment only to find themselves more alienated than before, The recurring motif is loneliness and alienation as a result of a confluence of complex factors that make one feel like an outsider, especially at a young age and especially at an age in which um, one is experiencing puberty, young adolescence, early adulthood. Uh, Camille Anna Paglia is an American feminist academic and a social critic, not a conservative, not a Christian. She's actually an outspoken progressive lesbian. She drew intense criticism when she hypothesized that our cultural moment may be vesting much of the ordinary adolescent wrestling with gender, body image, self-esteem, in the definition of gender dysphoria. She said, I think that gender identity has become a kind of fashion. A kind of convenient label for young people who may simply feel alienated culturally for many other reasons. So in the late 1950s, they might have become a beatnik. In the 1960s, they might have become a hippie. Today, you're told that your alienation is related to gender. Now, backlash against statements like these are, are swift and brutal, which can create the impression that one would be alone in the universe to even pose questions about the gender identity narrative on one side of the conversation or the other. My God, lest we forget that the entire maelstrom of controversy surrounding J.K. Rowling began when she replied to a tweet using the gender-inclusive term, people who menstruate, and said, those people are called women. And here again, I would argue, in the redefining and repurposing of gender outside of God's ordination, as it was in the church, so too in the culture, women ultimately pay the highest price. Rachel Dalzell was the president of Spokane's chapter of the NAACP until she was forced to resign, if you know the story, amidst an international controversy when it came to the world's attention that she was a white woman who had been posing as a black woman for several years. And the outrage was vehement, but Dalzell refused to back down. She said, and I quote, if somebody asked me how I identify, I identify as black. Nothing about whiteness describes who I am. 
and the overwhelming, and I would argue personally warranted, public consensus, uh, consensus against Dalsal was, no, being black is not an identity a white person can simply assume at will because they are fundamentally incapable of fully understanding the black experience. It's not just wrong, it's offensive when those with certain social privileges usurp and appropriate those who have been oppressed, which I would argue is very true. So what about women? For thousands of years across the world, men have enjoyed certain societal advantages ranging from being legally, uh, 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 or, or women have, in, have suffered certain societal disadvantages like being legally prohibited from voting or driving to many Muslim countries around the world still today where it's illegal for women to be seen in public without head coverings or veils. Is it right for a man who will never understand those experiences that Beth Moore detailed to say, I am every bit a woman as you? When we depart from God's ordination of gender, those who are powerless and oppressed, those for whom God's heart uniquely aches, are often forgotten. Controversial comedian Dave Chappelle is constantly in infamous hot water with gender identity advocates for saying things like, and this is a quote of his, I cannot shake this awful suspicion that the only reason everybody is talking about the transgender movement is because white men want to do it. It reeks to me of white privilege. Have you ever asked yourself why it is easier for Bruce Jenner to change his gender than it was for Cassius Clay to change his name? And I know that all of that is a lot of information. Honestly, researching this thing was just exhausting because when you poke around the internet, it seems as if there is only violent fundamentalism pro or anti with no nuance, no conversation, and no room to figure it out. But I believe, personally, and I've come to believe over the last few years, that the most militant extremes of either perspective are simply the ones who do the most screaming into the megaphone. And here's what I mean. Um, the Pew Research Center conducted three year, a three-year study polling Americans about their beliefs on gender. Uh, the survey was more than 10,000 randomly selected people across the country was weighted to be representative of, the U representative of the U.S. adult population by gender, race, ethnicity, partisan affiliation, education, and other categories. So in other words, all of America represented across all different kinds of people. The survey found that in 2017, 54% of Americans believe gender is determined by sex assigned at birth and can be nothing else. In 2021, the number rose to 56%, and in 2022, it rose again to 60%. But, listen to this, the same study found that 64% of Americans support laws and policies that would protect transgender individuals from discrimination in jobs, housing, and public spaces such as restaurants and stores. Meaning, many of those same individuals, if not most of those same individuals who believe that gender is determined by sex assigned at birth and can be nothing else, also believed in policies that would protect transgender people from discrimination. So maybe there are people, maybe even more people than not, who deviate from the rapidly evolving gender identity narrative, but who have no interest in seeing those with whom they disagree treated poorly as a result. That is a paradox no headline seems to capture on the right or the left. And there are all sorts of reasons for this. Hopefully you guys know me enough to know that I'm not like anti-culture or anti-art or anti-entertainment industry or some such thing, but when you're surrounded by headlines or steeped in cancel culture or observing transgender cartoon characters in programs intended for preschoolers, it can sort of feel like the gender needle has moved and that keeping up with it has become hopelessly complicated. It's not just who is or isn't male or female either, but what it means to be a man and a woman in the first place. As the term toxic masculinity proliferated across social media, the idea of masculinity itself became entirely profane and all of manhood was reduced to unthinking misogyny and rape culture. But rather than purging toxic masculinity from culture, this gave way to a new kind of embellished 
toxic masculinity, or else a timid apprehension around manhood itself. Defensive men became solidified in their angry sexism or in an effort to distance themselves from the soft new man who had become unsure and wobbling, unable to carry themselves with any kind of confidence or share leadership with other men or women, women, terrified that what it means to be a man was now being redefined by Twitter and Gillette advertisements. And it seems as if so many of our issues with gender at a cultural level grow from misunderstandings about what men and women are meant to do in the first place. In other words, gender roles. Conservatives and progressives, I believe, play into this. Oh, your boy has long hair, must be a girl. Your girl likes sports, must be a boy. And we don't want to be confined by the culturally traditional like 1950s gender roles, the man as the emotionally vacant breadwinner and the woman as little more than a gossipy, busy housewife. But instead of critiquing the roles offered by church and culture, everyone assumes the problem is actually with the entire understanding of gender itself. So the church, I believe, needs to repent of the way it's been complicit with establishing culturally specific gender roles, which is something the Bible never actually teaches, and still hold to the idea of a gender binary, which the Bible teaches very clearly from beginning to end. Male and female, he created them. The reality is that both cultures of politicized evangelicalism and of social media tribal warfare have failed to demonstrate gender as something to be carried out with self-sacrificial love. The temptation from the beginning was to transcend one's God-given, ordained parameters and to reach for something that we already have or something from which God is protecting us. It's the temptation to suspect God of keeping good things from us and that He Himself isn't good. But God's boundaries are life. Only within them can we ever truly learn we are enough as His beloved and nothing more. And I believe that only the scriptures portray the true personhood and uniqueness of male and female and invite us to bring all of who we are, including our gender and our confusion about it, before the God who made us, male and female, and who redeems us from a broken world and our broken selves. So what do we do? Last week, I pointed out that Paul, speaking into a culture of extremely progressive sex ethics, sex ethics that would make you know, the Pacific Northwest in 2023 looked like an episode of the Dick Van Dyke Show. He explicitly told early disciples of Jesus to mind their own business, saying, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Listen to this. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you meaning stick to what's happening in the church, and specifically your church. For disciples of Jesus, there is no culture war against culture, and there is no assimilation into culture. There is only the way of Jesus. Last week I said this, and I'll say it again. We can accept the way and the truth and the life of Jesus without giving in to war zone mentality. This is what I like to call grace without compromise. I see no reason to hide or water down what I believe to be true about the scriptures and the way of Jesus, just as I see no reason to weaponize it. I believe that I can, we can, hold a theological position that informs our belief and practice without succumbing to the cultural narrative of black and white fundamentalism. A while ago, I was asked to give uh, some kind of online interview or something, and the person posting it asked me for my preferred pronouns. I'd never been asked such a thing. I thought about it for a while, and I had some relational equity with this person. She's a friend of mine. So I asked if she would mind just not including pronouns one way or the other. Why? Not because I'm such a hardcore fundamentalist and I must prove my dogmatic point. It's because I don't believe that my gender is open to interpretation and I don't want to personally, as much as it depends on me, actively participate in an ideology recognized for such belief. 
For me to say Josh is he, him, is to say I recognize and believe I could be something else. I don't, personally. Does this mean that if someone came up to me and asked me to use pronouns that deviate from their biological sex, I would get down on the ground and draw angry, angry lines in the sand and refuse to do so? Also, no, of course not. I believe I can hold a belief and live it out consistently without compromise for myself and my community, without imposing it on a world beyond the church. And so we answer the question of how we, as disciples of Jesus, interact with a culture in gender, crisis, in gender crisis in two ways. First, we carry out the way of Jesus faithfully amongst the family of God, holding one another accountable to the teachings of Jesus in the delegated authority of the scriptures in self-sacrificial love. And to the world around us, beyond the church, we extend this invitation. Come and learn about Jesus. You're invited. You're welcome. All of you. And God's priority for the lives of those inside and outside the church is not primarily to reconcile any and all brokenness in gender, but to bring all of us into the truth that sets us free and the life that is truly life in Jesus. And in that process, all of who we are is being brought before and into the redeeming fire of God's love. That's the first dimension of our response to a world in gender crisis. The second response is to those inside the church wrestling with their own gender, and it begins by posing a series of questions. Who do we trust to tell us the truth about gender? Social media, a political party, our own experience, the experience of someone we know and love, or Jesus? To whose wisdom will we adhere? To whose authority are we willing to submit? Everyone believes a story and everyone chooses masters. It's not really a controversial thing to say that our culture is a formation machine, actively and passively transforming who we are over time. During the months of lockdown in early 2020, our church was not gathering in person, nor was anyone. Van City communities were not gathering in person. It was a, a trying season for many, if not all of us, in many ways. But one motif that surfaced as the church slowly crawled back into rhythms of gathering was this strange new, um, unexpected for me, antipathy toward the church and the vision of Jesus. At first, I naively assumed, I don't know, maybe everyone's just in a bad mood because of the pandemic, or maybe we all got lazy, or maybe we're all traumatized. But then, in one of the many meetings I had unpacking that same newfound hostility against the church, something sinister kind of took shape before my very eyes. I was meeting with a young man eager to participate in our community prior to lockdown, but after those long months of quarantine, he was reluctant to come back, and it wasn't because of health concerns. And he told me, he actually had the self-awareness to say, I have just been spending so, so much time on social media during all this, with no one to see and nowhere to go. I have been living in the digital world, and there's just so much out there telling me that all this, the church world and what it believes, is toxic. The stories we believe, the voices that we entertain, give shape to the person we are becoming. What is shaping you? So much of our rhetoric around sexuality and gender has to do with our felt experience or um, of our bodies and how we use them to express our sexual desires. And yes, your body and your feelings and your desires are real. They aren't meaningless. They aren't trivial. They aren't to be just dismissed as unimportant. But Christians believe a different story about the world and the people in it. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this, Flee from sexual immorality is kind of a junk drawer term that applies to everything that deviates from the Genesis 1 paradigm. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Listen to this, please. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. To end, let me just tell you this story. With such a tremendous risk to the mother, exposure was preferable to abortion as the safest way to conclude an unwanted pregnancy in the, er in the ancient world. 
The idea was carry the baby to term, give birth, then take the newborn infant to the dump beyond the city gates and leave it there to die from thirst or starvation or wild animals or just exposure to the elements. And as common a practice as exposure was, human trafficking was just as ordinary. Sex traders made a common practice of skulking the city dump, looking for infants left to die, take them, and usher them into something even worse. The brutality of sex trafficking in the ancient world was, as it is today, an unspeakable process of dehumanization by which children were prepared for a life of sexual slavery by breaking them down systematically and over time with abuse so horrific and so overwhelming and persistent that the victim was reduced to a shell of a human being. And then these sex slaves, many of whom were children, would be bought and sold in the market alongside meat and milk as mere objects for consumption and disposal. And Paul, he wrote the letter we just read to a church of Jesus' followers in the city of Corinth, one of the great hubs of human trafficking in the Greco-Roman Empire. This is the terrible imagery that Paul evokes and redeems with one line of stark, scandalous literary sophistication. The image is this. God himself steps into the market where a broken-down, ruined human being is about to be bought and sold as an object for consumption. And God himself buys that shell of a human. But he does not release them to their own freedom. No, such a thing would be a death sentence in the ancient world. Instead, he brings the child home and cares for it. God is not a slave master. He's a good father. He nurses and nurtures, nurtures that broken person back to health and restores them with his good and gracious care and self-sacrificial love. He gives them hope and a purpose and that healed, redeemed, restored person made new in love wants nothing more than to be with the good father under his care and to honor what they know to be his good and gracious way of life. I owe my life to you, so I will give my life to you, all of me, everything I am. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Lord Jesus, teach us, teach us what it means to do so together. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to speak. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.